Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Les Enlumineurs. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Kristen Racanello, the host and producer of the Les Enlumineurs podcast, and today we're going to discuss Guido da Colomna's Historia Destructionis Troiae, or The History of the Destruction of Troy, which is an extract from the Sibylline Prophecies. Our copy of this text is in Latin, although it was made in northern France, around 1445 to 1465. This is our TM-1108, or text manuscript 1108, and it is a decorated manuscript made on paper rather than on vellum or parchment. It is one of the most popular texts in all of the Middle Ages, influencing both literary and historical writing. Guido da Colonna's work shaped the understanding of the history of Troy for centuries, in the later parts of the medieval period, several translations of Guido's work appeared in Catalan, Dutch, French, English, Polish, Czech, German, and Italian. One of those earliest translations was Historias Troianes, translated to Catalan by Juan Conesa in 1367. It was especially translated and retold in numerous vernacular versions in England, including those by Lydgate and Chaucer. The Troy Book is the Middle English poem by John Lydgate, relating the story of Troy from its foundation through to the end of the Trojan War. It is in five books, comprising 30,117 lines in 10-syllable couplets. Troy Book was Lydgate's first full-scale work. It was commissioned from Lydgate by the Prince of Wales, Henry V, or I should say who later became Henry V, who wanted a poem that would show that the English language was just as fit for a grand theme as other major literary languages. Essentially, he was trying to validate English. Lydgate tells us that he began writing the poem at four o'clock on the afternoon of Monday, the 31st of October, 1412, and he completed it in 1420. It has been argued that Lydgate intended the Troy book as an attempt to outdo Chaucer's Trojan romance, but certainly the frequent recurrence of tributes to Chaucer's excellent as a poet is a notable feature of this poem. That text is an epic poem by Geoffrey Chaucer, which retells the tragic story of the lovers Troilus and Chrysidae in Middle English against a backdrop of war during the Siege of Troy. It was written in rhyme royale and probably completed during the mid-1380s. Many Chaucer scholars actually regard this as the poet's finest work. As a finished long poem, it is more self-contained than the better-known but ultimately unfinished Canterbury Tales. This poem is often considered the source of the phrase, quote, all good things must come to an end. 
the Latin text, was a principal source for Caxton's Reusel of the Histories of Troy, the first book ever printed in English. The Roussel of the Histories of Troy, or Roussel des Histoires de Troy, is a translation by William Caxton of a French courtly romance written by Raoul Lefebvre, chaplain to Philip III, Duke of Burgundy. Roussel simply means collection in English. Hence, the work in modern English would read, A Collection of the Histories of Troy. Caxton's translations and sometimes his titles, incorporated words from other European languages that were left untranslated. Caxton, probably with the assistance of Collard Manson and Johann Veldner, printed his translation in 1473 or 1474 in Bruges. Just 18 copies of this still exist today. A presentation copy of the first edition with a specially made engraving showing Caxton presenting the book to Margaret of York is now in the Huntington Library in California, having previously been in the collections of the Duke of Roxburgh and the Duke of Devonshire. This royal patronage may have been more a form of advertising than a representation of a traditional medieval patronage relationship. Of Guido's text, there are more than 150 known manuscripts in all. This, of course, doesn't begin to factor in the number that must have perished or become lost over time. The large corpus of these extant manuscripts testifies to its importance, but it is nonetheless quite rare to find one on the market. For example, only two copies have been offered for sale in the last few years. The competitive atmosphere this text fostered between authors speaks ultimately to the popularity of the text and of prominent patrons' desire to hear the text in their vernacular language. Our author, Guido da Colomna, who's also known as Della Colonne and De Columnus, was an inhabitant of Messina, who held office as a judge in the 13th century and wrote this work on the history of the destruction of the legendary city of Troy following the theme of an earlier Latin work attributed erroneously to the ancient Greek Deres Phrygius, while drawing on the old French Roman de Troye by Benoit de Saint-Marc. An interest in drawing up the genealogies of major noble families from France to Iceland throughout the Middle Ages led to this interest in the history of ancient Troy and its figures, inspiring the handful of medieval histories that survive, each more in the realm of literature or medieval romance than accurate history as we tend to understand it today. The text claims that its author wrote it in just 71 days, from the 15th of September to the 25th of November of an unspecified year, but with the full text certainly finished by 1287. The work, and its derivatives, influenced the popular understanding of Trojan history for hundreds of years, certainly until the beginning of the 18th century. The text is extracted from the Sibylline oracles, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. But what are the Sibylline oracles or prophecies? So these are texts 
purportedly dictated by ancient Greek oracles. The Sibyl was understood to be a single Greek prophet, renowned for the accuracy of her forecasts, divinely inspired, but often portrayed as mad or raving, and regularly spewing forth dire foreboding statements. Additional Sibyls gradually sprang up in a variety of locations in the Mediterranean world, including the renowned Cumaean Sibyl, who Aeneas reputedly consulted. Sibylline prophecies were eventually collected in written form in Rome and used by Roman authorities to provide interpretation of things like unusual prodigies or natural disasters, or to offer advice on significant matters of foreign diplomacy and wars. Although that collection of texts has long since disappeared, the voice of the Sibyl was reproduced in literary form following the Roman compilations. The Sibylline verses that still exist today are composed in Homeric Greek hexameters. There are 12 books of oracles fashioned over many centuries by numerous different and no longer identifiable scribes and authors. They appear as a mixed assemblage of grim forecasts, historical references, apocalyptic visions, and denunciations of various people, especially the Romans, for their abandonment of piety and their indulgence in evil deeds. The genre was appropriated by anonymous Jewish authors, speaking through the voice of the Sibyl, and employed to convey condemnation of cities and nations for the sins of idolatry, licentiousness, and a range of other vices. Vivid portrayals of the end time and eschatological conflagration, and by that I mean biblical fire, feature in many of the texts. Subsequent Christian writers added their own interpretations of the Sibylline verses, including exaltations of Christ and appropriated Sibylline pronouncements for their own ends. Others manipulated the oracles to record historical personages and events in the framework of prophetic pronouncements. The resulting text was a complex, unsystematic compilation of reconstructed or fabricated prophecies ascribed to Sibyls, but largely representing the ingenuity of Jewish and Christian compilers. This method was not unusual in the medieval period, as we know from previous podcasts. Although there is a major difference between an author and a scribe, as we discussed in episode 26, there was often a bit of fluidity between the two professions. Scribes commented on the works they copied, and this developed into the genre of the commentary. Today, commentary usually takes the form of footnotes, endnotes, or separate text cross-referenced by line, paragraph, or page. But in the medieval period, commentaries became books in and of themselves. The strict modernist division that we have between text and footnotes simply was not used in the medieval period. Our copy of the Historia Destructionis Troiae was copied between 1445 and 1465, although Guido originally completed the text in 1287. 
It is composed of 74 folios on paper and is foliated from 1 through 74 in modern Arabic numerals. Single full-length vertical bounding lines and two horizontal bounding lines are faintly ruled in lead with prickings visible in the upper, lower, and outer margins of the pages. The text was written by a single scribe in a small, neat, gothic cursive script in a single column of 44 lines, with two to five line initials alternating in red and blue, most with reserved white spaces as decoration. Additionally, those initials from folios 1 to 35 are infilled with flourishings in pale brown ink. A few even incorporate grotesque faces, and the large opening initial S is party-colored in red and blue, with predominantly red flourishing accompanied by a narrow, four-sided border wrapping around the text in alternating red and blue flourishing. There are notes for the rubricator in the extreme lower margins, but no rubrics were supplied in the spaces left in the text, although there are occasional contemporary marginal notes or corrections. The manuscript has a special contemporary limp parchment binding that's sewn on with two tackets. The spine has been reinforced with a strip from a printed textile that is perhaps of northern Italian origin from the 18th century. Our manuscript was copied in northern France, though, probably just after the middle of the 15th century, an attribution we've made based on the evidence of the watermarks on the page. Both are found on paper, manufactured in Troyes. The coat of arms on paper attested in Troyes in the 1460s, and the bull's head on the paper, that is the bull's head watermark, attested in Troyes in 1442 and in Paris in 1446. Many manuscripts of this text were elaborately illustrated for important patrons. The simplicity of this copy indicates that it was made for a reader of lesser means, who nevertheless was able to read the Latin text and valued the neatness with which it was executed. This origin is also reflected in its contemporary binding which was sewn on with tackets. Tackets were a quick and inexpensive way of assembling a manuscript, but such volumes almost never survive in their original condition as ours does. Additionally, there is a partially legible note on the back cover attributing the text to Darius Phrygius and dating the manuscript to the 12th century. A note on a slip of paper laid into the manuscript in the 19th century reads, Aegidius Columna, Historia Trojana in Latin, paper, early 15th century, 74 leaves, written in northern Italy, old limp vellum wrapper, <laughs> end quote. We know an additional detail about this manuscript's life as well. It came to the United States through Miss G. Winship Taylor of Baltimore, as it was described by De Ricci in the 1930s when it was in her collection, and he recorded that she inherited it from her father who purchased it in 1900. Guido da Colomna's Historia Destructionis Troyae begins and ends with a justification for his project. He begins the text by explaining why he's retold the story of Troyae, according to Darius and Ditas. 
He wrote that he supplied many particulars which Cornelius, in his translation of them, improperly omitted. The colophon, meaning the author's endnote, reads in Latin, quote, I, Guido de Columnus, have followed Didus the Greek in all things. Anxious to forestall interruptions, I completed my work in 71 days, though I had written the first book long before at the insistence of Matthias, Archbishop of Salerno. The work is intended to correct the errors of Virgilus, Oidius, and Homerus, end quote. Remember, Guido was following an earlier Latin work attributed erroneously to the ancient Greek Dares Phrygius and Didus. Then, at the end, we come across two verse epitaphs, one for Hector and one for Achilles, that were frequently included in manuscripts of the Historia Destructionis Troiae and also appear with that text in early printed editions. In our manuscript, the epitaphs were copied following the colophon, although other manuscripts include them before the colophon, where Guido notes that he has written this in 71 days. The body of the narrative of this text moves from the remote origins of the war in Jason's quest for the Golden Fleece to the heroic battles and downfall of Priam's Troy, and finally to the catastrophes awaiting the Greek victors on their homecoming. Our manuscript ends with an extract from an oracle attributed to the Erythrian Sibyl that survives in about 70 manuscripts dating from the 13th to the 16th centuries. The textual tradition of the oracular pronouncements attributed to the Sibyls, the legendary prophets that we just discussed from antiquity, this is a very complex textual tradition. It includes those elements of Christian, Jewish, pagan, and classical traditions, and not infrequently the prophesying of events that had already taken place. The earliest compilations are sometimes dated to late antiquity, but recent scholarship considers that the compilation of the Latin verses attributed to the Erythrian Sibyl emerged in Italy in the mid-13th century. The passage at the end of our text, which predicts the defeat of Troy by the Greeks, more commonly begins, Aquaritus me illustrissima turba danum. This is usually the beginning of the composition in Latin hexameters, but it's copied here as prose by the scribe who wrote the entire manuscripts. It was perhaps selected by the original owner of this codex, or someone before them, as a fitting supplement to Guido's text, so this is an unusual addition. Research into the manuscripts of the Historia Destructionis Troiae could reveal to what an extent this prophecy forms part of the original textual tradition. Despite its popularity, the text is rare on the open market. None have appeared at auction since 1977, and only two copies have been offered by book dealers in the last 20 years. The Schoenberg database records that Sotheby's has sold only five copies in the last century, while Krauss has had two copies in that same time period, and Quaritch offered one from the Library of Sidney Cockerell in their catalog in 1957. And finally, Jorn Gunther has more recently offered a single copy. 
So that's all for today's podcast on this unusual manuscript. So thank you for journeying into the destruction of Troy with me. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast and even to share this podcast with a friend who might be interested. We would really love to hear your thoughts about this episode's topic. Do you know something about this unusual manuscript or the history of the destruction of Troy that could help us expand our understanding? Let us know. You can find out more about this manuscript on our website, and you can reach out with comments and questions through our social media at Les Enlumineurs. And don't forget to check our website, textmanuscripts.com, in order to find out more about this unusual piece. Thanks for listening.